Father, we ask that as we come to your word now, that you would speak to us by it, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat again and turn to Psalm 12 on page 452. At this point, we thought there was going to be two kids who are normally here, and, and we, brought them, we bought them Chubba Chops. Really, what I should have done is bought about a dozen. We could have all had one. You could have been sitting there sucking on your lolly and listening to me. But if you listen really well, then you can get one at the end. Uh, <laughs> page 542. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm on a, I have a different... Don't listen to me. Is that right, 452? Yeah. Uh, it just so happens that my version says 542, which is very confusing. Sorry about that. Uh, let's read it together. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to Shemetheth, uh, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And may God bless the reading of his word. Do you remember how people used to say, I give you my word. I give you my word. People used to say that. It has pretty much zero force today. If anybody says it, like, I give you my word. Well, no, I'd rather have it in writing. Thanks very much. I give you my word. Originally, it meant that if somebody said that to you, it was going to happen. I give you my word. That means, therefore, that there was a connection between what was said and the person's heart. What was said was aligned with the person's heart. The person said he was going to do this, and his heart's desire was to carry it out, and so they, so they did it. There was an alignment. There was a, an integration. Where we get the word integrity from. There was an integration between a person's words, what they said, and their heart, what they did. They were aligned. They were in sync. but it doesn't have that same force anymore. But we like it when people say it. People say it in, in literature and in movies. It's a, kind of a, it's a kind of a Jane Austen type term. You know, I, I give you my word, my darling, that I will return upon the fourth of the month and I will whisk you off and we will be married. It means on the fourth of the month, he's going to return and whisk his beloved off. Uh, I don't think Jane Austen ever wrote those words. I'm just making it up. Uh, I will, or it's a, or it's a, it's a good kind of war movie expression. It's a good kind of, it's a good Tolkien, Lord of the Rings type expression. 
kind of, I give you my word, my Lord, that I will follow you into battle, into the very fires of Mordor. It's that kind of, it's that kind of pledge of, I give you my word that this will happen. I will make good on what I say. It speaks of honor, doesn't it? It speaks of honor, of courage, of integrity. I give you my word. However, these days, a lot of the time, the connection between what somebody says and what somebody thinks in their heart what somebody desires to do, very oftentimes that connection isn't there. People say one thing, but they mean another. People say one thing, and they do another. Their words, their mouth, and their heart are not in alignment. They're not connected. They're not integrated. Irish people do this in some, this is kind of in some frivolous ways, but it kind of illustrates the point. Irish people do this, especially Irish mummies. We've only got one Irish mummy in here, uh, but they do this. My Irish mummy certainly does. She'll say, say things like, sure, come round for a cuppa. What they mean by that is, if you ever turn up on my doorstep, I will panic and freak out. Don't ever come round. But they'd say, yeah, sure, we'll have a cuppa. No intention. No intention of setting up that coffee date. They'd have a heart attack if you turned up on the doorstep. Or, what is another thing that, people, that Irish people do, especially young Irish people? Maybe it's not just Irish, maybe it's lots of people. They say, you going tonight? Yeah. No. You going to the, to the thing? Oh yeah, be there, see you later. No intention. Absolutely no intention. Irish people aren't socialites, they're social liars. They're not socialites, they're social liars. They've no intention to go up. Those are trivial examples, I know, but there's an example of hollow words. People say one thing and they do another. It means that that speech verbal interaction between people, it becomes actually devalued. It breeds mistrust. You keep on, keep on saying to that person, are you coming to the thing? And they keep on going, yeah, yeah, I'll see you there. And time after time after time after time, they never make good on their word. Well, it actually changes how you view that person. You say, well, actually, that person doesn't have a lot of integrity. There's no point asking that person. Well, that person just says one thing and does another. We've all been on the receiving end of it, but if we're honest, we've all been perpetrators of it too. All of us at one time or another have said one thing, and we have had no intention of carrying it out. We see it at a societal level as well. See it in, in government. We see it with politicians. Politicians, uh, they, they campaign. Uh, so there's, a, there's an expression that says you, uh, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. 
basically what that means is they, they make great grand promises about what they're going to do if you elect them. Uh, the UK saw that recently. They make grand promises if you vote one way. And then shortly after, you realize that a lot of those words turned out to be hollow. And again, people in the UK are finding that out uh, in the most dramatic way. People promise change. They promise justice. But it all just becomes flattery. It's flattering lips. Flattery designed to get elected. I know that that's a fairly cynical view of the world that we live in, but there's some truth in it, no? I know that people, there are people around about, and there are people in government and people in, in the corridors of power in our land who do genuinely act with courage and with integrity and with honor. And yet, can you not see that as we read through 712, it's actually not all that far from the world that we live in? People flatter. <coughs> Empty words. People say one thing and do another. And so, Psalm 12, two questions today that we're asking of this psalm. First, what is the result of empty words? Second, what is God's response to empty words? What's the result of empty words, and what's God's response to empty words? The first question, what's the result? Well, the result that we see is that is that it causes, and here's a, here's a big word, Bianca, it causes disintegration. What do I mean by that? You talk of somebody having integrity. If somebody has integrity, <laughs> that was just my daughter kicking a Bible off. Uh, it's, not, it's not her view of the Scriptures. She's just five months old for anybody listening on the recording. Um, when you say that somebody has integrity, it means that you're saying that there is a connection between what they say and what they want and how they act, that there's, a, there's an integration, that they are integrated, and it forms a kind of strength of character. However, what sin does, what sin does in our world is sin pulls all those things apart. Sin disintegrates our lives. It drives a wedge between our mouth and our heart, or you might say between our mouth, our heart, and our hands. It drives a wedge. And so human beings, we become disconnected internally. We should say what we mean and mean what we say, but sin divides us. It makes us double-hearted. You see that verse 2? talks of this double heart, this divided heart. And, Sa and David in Psalm 12 is living in a society where there, it looks like there are so many people like this, where it is so prevalent, where it is so pervasive, that it's as if there's nobody, there's nobody godly left. It's as if there's nobody who, who is integrated, who has courage and honor and integrity. It's like they're all gone, verse 1. It says, the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. So pervasive is the problem. People lying to one another. They deceive. 
And lots of it is done with positive words. People say nice things to you. People, have you ever had that? Where somebody will say something nice to your face and they'll be all smiley and lovely, but actually they've got the daggers out for you behind their back. Put it more pointedly, have you ever done it? You've been, oh, hi, how you doing? You know? Deceit doesn't need to be done with, with angry words, with negative words. Here it's done with flattery. Or, verse 3, they talk much of themselves without much of a thought for others. They make great boasts, is what verse 3 says. They believe themselves, in verse 4, to be the masters of their own destiny. Like the poem Invictus, after which the movie is named. You know that poem? It matters not how straight the gate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. They are so confident in their own ability to schmooze people. And yet, at the very end of the psalm, the, end of the, the psalm ends weirdly. It ends in this really kind of downbeat, kind of, whoa, hold on a second, this really negative note. But verse 8, it kind, of, kind of what it does is it, it, it lifts the mask behind all the flattery, behind all the, all the smiles, all the fake smiles. And it shows what those, what those people are really like. The wicked, vile. Those are strong words. I don't know if any of you have read or seen the film uh, of Roald Dahl's The Witches. Anybody read or seen The Witches? Yes. I still cannot watch The Witches. I find it absolutely terrifying, and it's a kid's movie. And I... I like scary things, but this one freaks me out. There's a scene in The Witches where, uh, where they, they all get together in a hotel in England for a big witchy conference. They all come together, and there's a, there's a little boy uh, in, the, in the room, and he's been turned into a mouse and all of these things. Uh, but there's a little boy in the room, and they all go in. They all go in, and they shut the doors away from all the human's eyes. Before the human's eyes, they've got, uh, they've got perfect hair, perfectly done, makeup, perfect skin, perfect clothes. They are beautiful women. And they go into this conference room and they shut the doors. And what's the first thing they do? They take off these itchy masks and they reveal their true form. And it's, it's, it's hideous, it's grotesque. That's kind of how the psalm ends. The psalm ends with us peeking under the mask and seeing what people, what, what people with divided hearts really look like. I'll say it for the first time and not for the last time in this sermon, is that it's easy for us to think that that's other people. We live with divided hearts. We live 
with flattering lips. We say things to to advance ourselves. We say things without thought to other people. This is an honest and kind of sobering look to, to what we're like without Jesus, to what we're like without Christ. This is the kind of mess that Christ comes to fix. Why is such strong language used of these people? Why does David pray that their lips would be cut off? Think of that. Because, because of the injustice and the hurt that double speech creates. It's not just that sin disintegrates people. It's not just that sin disconnects and pulls people apart. It's that their actions cause society to fracture. It causes society to lose connection, connection between the, uh, the poor and the needy, the haves and the have-nots. That, that, that divide widens and gets bigger and bigger. And so David prays that they would stop doing that. Why? Because the poor are plundered, verse 5, and the needy groan. They flatter and charm to pursue their own advantage, and what happens? The weak get trampled underfoot and left behind. Again, I don't know if any of you have seen The, the Apprentice, whether, uh, whether the UK version or the US version. People in The Apprentice tend to be horrible human beings. I say that with you know, great measure. Uh, but they tend to be horrible. They are, they step on other people. They stab other people in the back to pursue their own advantage, to make sure that the other person gets fired and they don't. They never take responsibility. They smile, and yet they've got the daggers out. Empty words perpetuate injustice. Because empty words are spoken by people who are motivated by self-interest, people who are motivated by their own comfort. They are unconcerned for the needs of people outside themselves. You just think of the injustice in our world. Think of, think of the shootings that we've been praying about, that we've been reflecting on. Think of the, uh, the, the gun violence in the States. And what happens every time, every cycle? It's the same empty words leading to the same inaction. Now, I don't pretend to know all the complexities and the ins and outs of, uh, of, Ameri- of American politics, Maybe you're like me on this side of the pond. I find it absolutely bewildering. I find it just bizarre. But it does seem that what is spoken is often just hollow words resulting in inaction. And it happens again and again and again. You think of our city as well, our city. It's homelessness, it's drug addiction, it's violence. Gang warfare. It's all perpetuated by people who are seeking their own advantage, seeking their own good and not the good of others. 
And again, before we simply sit here this Sunday morning and point the fingers at others, because it's easy to sit in judgment over other people, we need to see that we are also self-seeking. We also desire our own advantage. We also desire our own advancement, our own comfort, our own prosperity over others. That's the sad truth sometimes. We don't always seek the good of people around us. That's sad. It's not the way it should be. So, what's the answer? What's God's response to empty words? Well, first of all, what we see in verses 5 to 7 is that God always does what He says. That's the difference. That's the difference between Him and us, is that God is perfectly integrated. There is a perfect connection between His words and His actions. They are in perfect concert. He never, ever, ever says one thing and does another. That means, therefore, and this is great news, that means, therefore, that we can always trust His words. We can always trust His words. Why? Because His heart is never divided. He is never self-seeking. He never seeks his own good. He never seeks his own self-interest. God comes in this psalm and he speaks in verse 5. It says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And God may as well have come and said, I give you my word. I give you my word. I will rescue, I will act, I will save, I will bring justice where there has been injustice, I will bring healing where there has been brokenness, I will bring rescue where people are lost. Empty words have no value at all. God's words have immense value. Look at verse 6 and how they're described. They're described as pure words like silver, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. That's the purest. Seven is just this this number of, of completion, of perfection, that they are perfectly pure, supremely valuable. In a world of flattering lips, in a world where people say one thing and do another, God meets it with pure honesty. Isn't that actually quite refreshing? In a world of lies and deceit, what's God's response? He's honest. In a world where you don't know if you can trust somebody's word, 
God meets it with an unfailing word that you can take to the bank, build your life upon, trust. You might not always like what he says, but at least you know where you stand with him. At least there's an integrity there in God. You might struggle with some of the things that he says, but at least you know his mind. There's no point. There's never a point in your Bible reading where you should think, do you think he really means that? Do you think he really will forgive me? Do you think he'll really give me new life or is he just saying that? We never think, of, we never think like that with our God. I'd encourage you never to think like that about your God. To never doubt to never think that his heart is divided. He has always been true to his word, and he always will be. Back in Genesis, he gave Adam his word that he would send a man, a man who would crush the serpent, Satan. He gave Abraham his word that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. In Exodus, he gave his word that he would provide a lamb who would take away the sin of his people. In the book of 2 Samuel, he gave David his word that an eternal king would sit on David's throne, that it would be established forever. Through the prophet Isaiah, he gave the people of God his word that he would send a servant to bear the punishment for them, one who would be crushed for their iniquities, pierced for their transgressions, that he would take their sin and bring them new life. And so in Jesus, God comes and he keeps his word. He keeps his word to us, that word long spoken. You know what the, one of the remarkable things, there's many remarkable things about Jesus. You know what one of them is? He was never double-hearted. He was never divided. He never said one thing and did another. His mind, heart, and lips his actions were always perfectly and purely integrated. We can scarcely imagine that, really. When you think, you just think about yourself for a second. There's the, there's the persona that you put across. There's the, there's the bit that everybody sees and the things that everybody knows about you. And, uh, and for us looking at that, that's who you are. But you think, about, you think about your internal life. You think about the bit that, that nobody sees, that, that bit inside. If you're anything like me, and I think you probably are, that bit in there, it's utterly chaotic. It's a real mad mess of stuff. It's like, it's like a box of Christmas tree lights. 
It's just totally entangled. And so in order to try and make sense of who you are, what you end up doing is you, uh, you pick a couple of things out of the chaos and you say, that's who I am. And you put that out front. It's like, it's like you put that up on the projector of your life. But, but really behind it all, it's just all a box of Christmas tree lights. There's loads of chaos going on in there. Does that, does that ring true at all? A few nods. Maybe some of you are perfectly integrated. Congratulations. Uh, so we can scarcely imagine this Lord Jesus, whose inner life was not like that, whose inner life was not chaotic, his heart was never divided. And what do we see? Here we see humanity as it's supposed to be. Here we see humanity as God made it to be in the face of Jesus. Here we see where we are going. Here we see the humanity that those of us who are trusting in Jesus are going to. A day when God will pick up that big mess of Christmas tree lights and He'll finally untangle it all and make us whole, integrated people, people who no longer say one thing and do another people whose actions and heart and mouth are all so perfectly aligned. Won't that be a great day? Won't that be a great day when that internal mess gets sorted out? We see perfect integrity in the face of Jesus. And what does he do? He sets his face resolutely to the cross. We read that in the Gospel of Luke. I didn't write it down because it's just come to my mind. I'll get the reference for you after, but there's a point in Luke where after he is, after he is taught, I think it's around about Luke 13 or so, and it says that from that point on, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. There was a relentless move. There was no turning to one side or the other. And he goes to the cross. Why? For double-hearted people like me. For double-hearted people like you. For those of us with flattering lips. For those of us who actually under the mask are a little bit messed up. That's what he dies for. He dies for a people who have pursued their own comfort. He doesn't. He was cut off so that those of us who have flattering lips and put our faith in him that we might live. Sin disintegrates. It pulls us apart. It makes us less than human. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, by contrast, is an act not of disintegration, but of reintegration, of bringing the pieces back together. And some of you have experienced that to one degree or another, that through faith in Jesus, actually what you find is that some of those pieces start to come back together again. It's not perfect, and you still, we still wrestle. We still wrestle with sin. We still live in this overlap of the ages. But things are different. Things are moving back into place. It's like going to the chiropractor. You just be like, click. 
And you're like, oh, that's the way it's supposed to feel. It's that kind of realization. There's still the, the old man or the old woman. And he, she still has their flattering lips. But we have the hope of the gospel that that old person is being torn down and a new one is being made in the image of Christ. And so, in the meantime, what do we do? Well, for those who aren't Christians, people who wouldn't call themselves Christians still value integrity. What I would encourage people in that position to do is to examine the man who has perfect integrity, perfect, pure honesty, to examine the Lord Jesus, to read of him for yourself, for themselves. If you're a Christian, many of you are here this morning. What does this mean? Pursue honor. Pursue purity in your speech. I don't just mean don't swear. I mean what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't be a social liar. Don't go, yeah, I'll see you there. If you're not going to show up, say, actually, do you know what? I can't be bothered. (laughs) What's the harm in that? If actually just being honest, let your yes be yes. And be encouraged, you know? Because it means that when we pray, as we've done this morning, that our prayers arise to someone who doesn't say one thing and do another. So when he says that he hears our prayers and will act, that gives us courage to pray. When we pray that God would comfort the families of those slain last week, we actually know that God is going to do that. It gives us great courage to pray to him because he doesn't have a divided heart. And can I encourage you to find ways not just to be concerned for your own needs, to be concerned for your own advancement, but to to seek the good of others? Even if that is just praying for them, being mindful of them. Whatever way you can, speak up for the poor, for the marginalized, and the unborn, Think of our land seeking to repeal the Eighth Amendment. We need to be those who plead the case for those who cannot plead for themselves. That's something that's going to come our way over the next months, year. And we need to cry out to God on behalf of the weakest in our society. Knowing that our prayers ascend to one who has pure words whose words we can trust, whose words we can live our lives in light of. That should give us courage this morning. Let's pray. Father, we know that as we sit here with bowed head and we pray to you that, that they really do rise to someone who hears who knows, and who acts. So, Father, we do cry out to you for our world, 
for our city, for our government. Your word commands us to pray for leaders and those in authority. We pray for our president, we pray for our Taoiseach, our Tanishta. We ask that you would give them a heart of wisdom. Father, would they set aside any flattering lips and would they live lives of courage and integrity, lives which honor you and do good to those whom they have authority over. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who gives us this perfect example of humanity. And we look forward to the day when our chaotic inner life will be, will be made whole, will be made integrated again. What a day that will be, we can scarcely imagine. We thank you for these truths and pray that you would kindle in us the fire of hope this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.